On this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, what happens when a higher ed institution avoids automated proctoring? And we've always treated curriculum design and the course delivery as, it, it doesn't matter about modality. Like online, in person, there's gonna be cheating, there's gonna be the same challenges. And rethinking the role of laptops as a factor in student success. We need to make sure that every student has access to similar hardware. And we don't ever want a student to say, well, I was able to get my project done faster because I had a more expensive computer than you did. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is Cutting Edge, where we talk to the people tasked with shaping campus through information technology and digital instruction. This episode is brought to you by Microsoft. Researchers at Washington University in St. Louis are developing chips that use tiny timers to create encryption keys. The research is revealing potential uses of this technology to secure internet-connected devices like sensors or machines used in hospitals. The chips are self-powered and smaller than some other encryption devices. Analytics company SAS donated $3.3 million in software to Clemson University, including access to its AI platform. There are many components to the partnership, including skills training to prepare students for the job market, but one focus is how researchers can incorporate machine learning into their projects. Some potential applications include gauging the mood of political tweets, exploring human genetics, and analyzing financial statements. Ottawa University in Arizona recently opened a cyber range to prepare business and government leaders for cybersecurity challenges. The university first used the range as a training tool for MBA students, but wants to offer the resource to companies and governments. The cyber range is also accessible remotely. Find all these stories and more on edscoop.com. The University of Michigan, Dearborn, directed its instructors away from online proctoring tools when the pandemic hit in 2020. Mitchell Solenberger, the school's associate provost for undergraduate programs in integrative learning, explains how that decision fed into the school's stance on assessments and why a weighty final exam might not be the right approach. It really uh, coalesced around several different factors and uh, um, really the, one of them was the stress of our students. And this occurred at the height, uh, the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, taking a step back from that, I wanna explain that traditionally we've done uh, delivered online education in an async way, uh, asynchronous as opposed to synchronous online. Um, and, and that's tends to be a little bit different than other institutions that had a synchronous and asynchronous component. And as an asynchronous online institution, we really did not support or push uh, for online proctoring, for instance. And uh, most of our instruction uh, in our instructional design was designed around um, doing uh, low stake assessments, more of a, a hypothetical examinations, right? Um, uh, where you could, you didn't necessarily have to do a uh, multiple choice, not to say that that wasn't allowed, but it, it was just, that's sort of where we gravitated to. And so we took that in consideration. And I think the stress for students kind of goes into another issue and they're interrelated, which is the access to technology. And we were really concerned about our students because of their, uh, a large percentage of our students are Pell eligible and take advantage of federal and state programs. And they struggle with, uh, uh, you know, having second jobs or 
you know, part-time jobs and uh, coming up with the money for tuition, let alone computers, et cetera. And so it was sort of an equitable access issue, not just with the technology, but internet at home. Obviously they couldn't come to campus and find a readily available place because we had shut down campus. Uh, we also had privacy concerns and issues with just what we were hearing about, um, you know, false positive cases on cheating through the AI technology. And then also hearing about how students could circumvent the, the, the system, right? Um, uh, even if you have lockdown browsers, they can have another device right next to them and be uh, finding out their answer, et cetera. So those, those were primarily our, uh, our reasons. I couldn't necessarily tell you which one rose to the top. Uh, for me, it was more about the equitability, the access and the stress those two combined together um, really convinced me to support this move. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how instructors responded to this, some of the changes in, in instructional design and maybe some of your favorite ways that you saw people approach this, um, especially as the pandemic continued? Yeah, certainly. It's a great question. And, you know, I, I think instructors, um, they were, I mean, it was an emergency circumstance. And, uh, you know, a, a typical semester in higher education, you have many, many months, usually about six months as an instructor to know what course you're taught, you're teaching and what modality. And so come March uh, of 2020, we had about 80% of our classes that had to pivot from in-person to online. And so it was an emergency circumstance. So our instructors, I think, had uh, mixed feelings about the entire situation, let alone uh, about this particular issue. And I don't think this, this particular issue in terms of uh, whether we're gonna allow online proctoring or not really rose to the top in the beginning. It was really about all hands on deck, making sure that we're giving the instructors um, as much support as we can. Um, instructional designers, our digital education office, you name it. And then obviously giving our students that support as well. So it was only later on did did the, the academic integrity issues kind of rise up. And when I say later on, I think really they started appearing a month later. And so, uh, and it wasn't to do with proctored exams or anything like that. It had to do with a, another online platform called Chegg. So we, we grappled with that like many other institutions did. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this changed over the, and you, you talked a little bit about it there, some of the academic integrity concerns that came up with distance learning and, and online study tools like Chegg. Um, maybe online proctoring was not the number one concern, but could you talk a little bit about just kind of the approach to uh, mitigating some of these challenges, some of the things that couldn't have been predicted at the beginning of the pandemic and and what those conversations with faculty members have looked like? Sure. I, I, I think um, our overall philosophical approach to online education, um, which is more of a long-term strategic um, uh, uh, plan or, or goal of ours, sort of helped mitigate some of the short-term problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that 
everything in the short term in terms of challenges were overcome with those long term, uh, the long term strategy. But I, I think it helps. So we've really taken a um, in hiring instructional designers, being intentional with um, the curriculum and instructional design. We took kind of a people centered approach as opposed to looking at technology so, uh, solutions. And we've always treated curriculum design and the course delivery as it, it doesn't matter about modality. Like online, in person, there's going to be cheating. There's going to be the same challenges. Um, there's going to be different flavors, but I, I'd like to think of it as like it's still kind of ice cream. One's Rocky Road, one's chocolate, right? So it, in many ways, if you forget about the modality and you just approach it like a class is a class and think about authentic assessments, right? And one of the things that we've been helping faculty understand, and it's a thing I had to overcome as an instructor, is that you don't want to have just one high stake assessment at the end of the semester. And I went to an undergraduate institute that institution that did that, where we had a final paper and a final exam. And I didn't get any kind of midterm or mid-course correction, let alone many low-stake assessments. So that's sort of what we've been um, emphasizing is a best practice. And I think that helped us here in convincing uh, faculty, particularly in this emergency circumstances, to ditch what they were doing and to just go with more low-stake things. And, and a lot of our faculty did, a, a, I don't want to say adjust, but they did adapt that. And I think it did help them. Um, obviously, there was a lot of other faculty who just sort of tried to, because they were drinking from a fire hydrant. They just tried to move everything online as best as they could. And, uh, you know, it was somewhat problematic and challenging because they were, they had never used Canvas or LMS, for instance. So there was some basic things that they had to learn and understand. So uh, hopefully I, answered your question adequately enough. <laughs> no, you definitely did. Let's dig in a little bit more to low stakes assessment. Can you um, explain a little bit what that might look like within the context of a course and maybe some of the takeaways as you've seen more faculty and instructors incorporate this into their course design? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, so I guess I'll just give at its most basic level, if you will, um, let's say you have uh, toss out a number, you know, thousand points you're giving out in a semester, as opposed to concentrating those a thousand points into two assignments where it's 500 and 500, you're spreading out the, the, the a thousand points into multiple assignments and you're giving feedback as soon as possible in order for to, to give the student the opportunity to correct their behavior, whatever it is, right? They're, uh, you know, if, if they're not necessarily learning content and in every course, I don't care if it's a science course, it's a political science course or a business course, there's scaffolding, right? There's scaffold learning where you're, you're maybe in the beginning uh, trying to learn basic concepts of that particular discipline or that particular area of the discipline, uh, maybe some skills, that, that, you know, need to be taught in order to be successful in four or six weeks. But remember, the semester is 15 weeks. So that whole idea of waiting until week 12, even 14, 15, it makes little sense to not at least give instructor feedback at week two or three, 
um, and making sure the student hasn't tripped up and we don't find them find out that they tripped up until week 14, 15, right? So we want to make sure that successful as possible. So if we can make sure that we're correcting them in week two and they can, you know, whatever it is they need to do in order to be successful. Uh, maybe in math, they have to go to the math learning center and um, work on, you know, using leveraging our Alex system, you know, or, or going seeing tutors or talking to the instructor about what they're not getting in terms of the basic concepts. So uh, for me, for instance, I came to this university in Michigan-Dearborn where I was doing one exam midterm examination, a final examination in a research paper for my upper level political science classes. I don't do that anymore. Um, I have, I have front loaded assignments for instance. So my students are getting feedback uh, relatively quickly and feedback that I think it's important for them to have, important for me to have because I have to adjust in my own instruction. So it's not just about the students adapting, it's instructors have to adapt. And can you share some of your thoughts from conversations about implementing this kind of approach uh, almost two years after the decision to not introduce automated proctoring and, and kind of working on introducing these low stakes assessments over the course of the pandemic, over the course of a crisis? Um, what are some some lessons that UM Dearborn has learned about communicating with instructors about these low stakes assessments and about flexibility in course design? Well, I think it, we benefited greatly that we were doing this prior to the pandemic. So uh, I just it's sort of our way of being. And um, I, I give kudos to the uh, hub for teaching and learning resources we have and uh, uh, the instructional designers that um, we've hired in, in recent years, because um, without them, we, we wouldn't have had the infrastructure in place to kind of engage faculty where they are. I certainly didn't have the capacity to do that. And, and uh, so I'm very thankful for them. So um, I, I, you know, I don't wanna sugarcoat this and say that we've been 100% successful. This is like anything else, it's a journey and we continue to have conversations with faculty and meet them where they are. So if some faculty do believe that they need to have, for instance, proctored exams, um, you know, after the summer of 2020, we did open up the campus. I think we we're about 15% in person. And we were strategic about that because obviously the pandemic was still going on. Um, and uh, Michigan was a state that had a high number of COVID cases, uh, deaths, right? Hospital, um, in terms of uh, high occupancy and uh, hospital beds. So we were mindful of all those things. So we capped our in-person around 15% and we were strategic in that we were bringing on campus the things that we believed that we needed to, for the students to be successful, hands-on learning, right? So science labs, um, we allowed for uh, math classes, engineering, senior design courses, so th those type of things. And those faculty, um, they wanted to go back to in-person proctored exams, and you know they they continue to do that to this day. But um, you know when it comes to uh, adjustments using these kind of low-stake exams, it's it, it's it, we have to provide the right programming 
right? And what I mean by that is the infrastructure in place to give the faculty the space to have these conversations with not just the instructional designers, but themselves, right, as a learning community. So we did offer workshops um, uh, open to all the faculty from our colleges. We brought in guest speakers for discipline specific um, uh, types of conversations. So for instance, the sciences um, were kind of grappling with, with this, um, you know, moving completely online in, in the, the winter term, March of 2020, and then only getting about, you know, 15% of their classes or so uh, in, in person uh, that fall. So, um, and then I also helped out in that we, we also organized a science task force. Uh, it was around labs, but it was getting all the science, natural sciences disciplines together and figuring out what kind of resources and infrastructure do you need to be successful? So uh, one of the things we did is we went out and we purchased uh, Labster, uh, which is a um, online software, lab software tool, and um, things like that that I think are outside of necessarily the, the proctored exam space and getting more into, you know, what kind of things can you help to build learning in an online environment that I think did help facilitate this a little bit better for faculty, particularly in the sciences. The sciences, and I doubt we're different than other universities, and I know we're not because I was talking to um, my Michigan four-year colleagues, uh, associate provosts at Oakland University, et cetera, where they were dealing with the same issues we were. So this is, um, and, and we're not there yet, right? It, it, the long-term uh, uh, answer is we will never have a final answer. Um, education, pedagogy, it evolves, and new faculty come in and have new ideas and new technology comes in that we try to merge where we can and be adaptive. And, um, you know, we face new problems. I mean, the, the Chegg example I mentioned, I would have never have, uh, in, in December of 2019, I didn't know what Chegg was. I would have never anticipated that when we closed campus in March of 2020. But then a month later, we're getting all these Chegg complaints and I'm having to write a letter to the Chegg folks about taking exams now. You can read more about automated proctoring and its impact on students at edscoop.com. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. Since the pandemic, colleges are taking a fresh look at how to make academic resources accessible for students and faculty. Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash talked with Microsoft's U.S. Education Specialist Kristen Coulouget and Director of Higher Education Rob Curden about how they see colleges and universities investing in new ways to promote more equitable and more secure access to higher education resources. I think before we can paint the full picture of hybrid learning today, let's take a step back and understand the initial impact of the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, you saw an immediate rush to remote learning, where both teaching and learning is performed at a distance. And certainly that proved itself to be extremely challenging. The efficiency of transitioning to remote learning is dependent upon preparing 
preparedness, technology tools, and that overall support infrastructure, which many institutions across K through 20 really did not have, and, and the workforce for that matter. And as we saw that play out, remote learning forced many institutions as a result to rethink their preparedness, their technology, and their infrastructure, and really realize that the majority of them, they weren't ready to withstand remote learning, nor was it sustainable long term. And at the time, too, in terms of technology, a consumer-grade solution was quickly adopted to help you know, stop the bleed, if you will. And institutions learned, and especially as they worked with their um, technology partners, they realized that now they need a more purposeful and, and permanent solution. So out of remote learning entered the concept, and I say entered the concept loosely because hybrid learning has actually been around for a very long time in education. You had that concept. It's it's a form of blended learning, but it's the concept of having face-to-face instruction and then also having um, online modalities to be able to, to consume content. But I want to take it one step further, and this is why I think it's so important for institutions to have a solid understanding of the technology tools and infrastructure that they have in place for their faculty and students. There's the concept of high flex learning, which has also been in institutions for for over 10 years now. But that's the concept of, of hybrid learning really in a flexible scenario for students when students actually have the choice of when they want to consume the content. So all that being said, between hybrid and high flex learning and remote just kind of has, thankfully, we've, we've pushed that to the side. Going forward, institutions are really going to need to have a solid solution. And, and they're, they're eager to understand that now because hybrid and high flex, that concept of, of giving choice and giving flexibility is not going away. And I think that was an initial question of, is this here to stay? And I, we can say confidently that that concept of, of hybrid certainly is. Well, Rob, I'd be interested in your perspective, and in particular, you know, why is it also important to ensure that the students and faculty have something approaching a more consistent experience across different types of learning and teaching methods? Yeah, well, I think you just hit it. It's equity, the experience for faculty and teachers in a world that was purposefully designed to be flexible is not where they are today, right? So, so Kristen made a very good point that our remote learning experience was really an emergency response. There was a heroic move by institutions, um, faculty members to adjust to the remote learning experience. But we all want to come back and covet that campus experience. But expectations are forever changed. Student expectations and, and even institutional expectations recognize that we can't reach more students. We can provide better options for access. And even individual students who value the campus experience, put a premium on it, are expecting that individual course sections or particularly large lectures, they should have the option to join that remotely. But that's now putting a burden on faculty. Faculty are expected to be a performer and a producer at the same time. They're expected to coordinate people in the room and out of the room. And so we have to think about the equity in the experience. And that has many facets to it from what does the room look like? How do we be inclusive of remote participants? And even how do we make sure the devices that they carry are appropriate for camera, audio, and that faculty are not put in a position of spending, which has been an issue, you know, 10 to 15 minutes in every class trying to troubleshoot single sign-on or who has access to what. So really it's about quality and for quality to be maintained, you need equity to be there. So Rob, how exactly can they do that? Yeah, pretty easy to say, right? Quality and equity are tightly connected, but how do you go do it? 
Well, the, the most important thing, and we've certainly seen it in consumer apps, is we just expect it to work, right? In, in some cases, mobile devices, the operating systems, the device, the app stores, everything just works. And so as we start to think about the ecosystem in the classroom, we certainly need to enable a great deal of choice. But that it just works expectation for both students and faculty carries over. So, you know, it begins with, and, and, and most people don't like to talk about identity. It sounds like a technical thing, but... Identity begins when you get on your device. Is it really you? It extends through to trust in the classroom. Are, are we being bombed in, in our class? And then it becomes an experience issue with we're not signing in to three or four different devices. So having a quality device in the hands of a student that uses biometric authentication, and, and you've seen that on mobile devices, we have Windows Hello that recognizes your face. That's actually being extended so that when you connect to the learning platforms, you connect to the meeting rooms, you enter into chats, that identity is just always carried over and you're not spending time signing in. It gives the assurance that the people that are in that class actually belong in that class. And so having platforms you can trust, learning platforms, having devices that users can use, not just learning devices that are remote, but also devices in the room, cameras, screens, having those those screens on the wall. And so the work that we're doing now is actually, we're working with furniture designers like Steelcase, and we're working with AV partners where we used to work with software developers so that when people walk in the room, it just works. And so that concept of personal device to large lecture hall and room or, or breakout rooms is an integrated experience. And by being integrated, the institution can then manage it and ensure that it's safe and it's being properly scanned for security and other items. Kristen, back to you. How does that reshape the way institutions, higher ed institutions should be thinking about their technology investments in a broader view? It's, it's a very good point. In talking to a lot of our higher ed institutions over the past two years, Wyatt, we have learned so much of their pain points and where they need to go next. And you see a lot of both large and small institutions who are rethinking how they reshape this learning experience on a whole. But I think institutions have really started to understand that Microsoft is at the table to help support that need for change. Interestingly, too, we had institutions come to us right before the pandemic that were recognizing that there were gaps in equity and access. It was almost as if they had a crystal ball to understand that something was coming eventually, that they knew that they had to provide different solutions for their students and their faculty. And so this just really pressed fast forward on many of those institutions' transformation. And thankfully, we're able to be there to provide them a single solution. Another pain point of, of institutions that they've voiced loudly is the number of single point solutions that they've had to use over the years that's really reduced. And we heard this directly from students themselves. It's now reduced them to only using email to collaborate and communicate. It's not really collaborating, if you will, but really to communicate with their peers and their staff because all of their individual solutions don't speak to each other. And so with a lot of our solutions, the unique piece of combining our software and our hardware solutions, it creates that unique experience that is singular. It is seamless. To Rob's point, it just works. Um, and I think that is really making a lot of institutions rethink how they build into their budgets specifically to provide that for not only their faculty, but also for their students so that there is equal access across the board to those solutions. Can you comment on how that also helps support better security regimens across campuses for CIOs and CISOs? 
Rob, you had some good insight on security specifically that I think would be relevant. Sure. It's no secret that universities are preferred targets of some of the world's either mischievous or downright criminal attacks. Some of the world's greatest IP is contained within a university. And as we know, the vulnerability for universities, all of the multiple endpoints, which in some cases could be a user's machine, student, faculty, administrator. So universities are faced with the goal of academic freedom on one end and to allow every learner and faculty member to, to use the tools of their choice. But they're also responsible with a safe perimeter and protecting the assets of the institution. So management tools that allow devices to be welcomed into the network, recognized into the network and properly quarantined if there is any alert that's noted, those are critical things for, for an institution. So having endpoint management is certainly critical. The other element, just from a learning standpoint, is you know they have to think through how do we provision a bunch of services in, in kind of an agile way? So if a student is taking um, an architecture course or a computer rendering course, we need to make sure that every student has access to similar hardware. And we don't ever want a student to say, well, I was able to get my project done faster because I had a more expensive computer than you did, or I had a high-end graphics workstation. And so we can actually provision full desktops in the cloud today where we can stream those out. And that actually makes it really safe because we can have these environments that are sort of pushed out to individuals' devices without having to actually manage the endpoint vulnerabilities. And that allows students and faculty to sort of proceed with confidence that, A, everyone is using the same quality machine to do maybe high-end tasks like rendering or high-end computation. And then at the same point, I want to make sure that on top of security, I want to provide those devices that can take advantage of all of these cloud services and have sort of the biometric authentication as well. And financial aid and the conversation of whether the device can be built into the cost of attendance and making sure that that device is a premium device. Kristen, maybe you should share it about being given a device that was seen as a premium device and the feedback from students, what they felt that that said about them from the institution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be able to provide this story for you guys. We have a, a link to the customer. We interviewed several students and just the unique experience that the device itself provided. One in particular had so much pride talking about his background and the struggles that he's had as a student and how that just made him feel so much more of a part of the university itself and provided him a unique opportunity to really belong. Those are powerful words and powerful things that institutions need to consider when they are considering the choice choices that they make for their students. I think what was most unique of one of the other stories that we have, it provides the opportunity, and, and I quote, to be relevant, unique, and competitive. And I think that's huge, especially as we look at these students and provide these opportunities to them as they head into the workforce or their next steps of their career, whatever that might look like. That's a great point about student success and preparing them for that workforce. Rob, any last thoughts on that? Data. You know, we're generating data that we never thought we had before. And at a time when the data that most universities have as it relates to outcomes is really tied to just basic demographic data. Who are you? Where did you come from? Some basic bio, the demographic data. The only thing they could ever correlate outcomes with was the data that they had, which was fairly sparse. But now we are generating gobs of data around engagement. 
what does a successful student look like? How many times do they log in a week? Who do they interact with? How many people do they interact with? And we can start to generate behavioral profiles of success and, and provide insight to faculty members. We can give insight early and give a nudge either to the student or to the faculty member to focus on certain learners. And that's been really helpful. Well, Kristen and Rob, thank you so much today for joining us and sharing some of your insights of what you're seeing on college campuses and at universities. Thank you, Wyatt. Thanks so much for having us, Wyatt. Microsoft's Kristin Coulouget and Rob Curtin talking with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can read more about devices and hybrid learning on edscoop.com. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com as well as everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Bamforth.